Does anyone speak English here? Yeah. Tell me quickly, are you all right? I'm all right. Trapped I in there. Four twenty. Uh, cannabis legalized in. <laughs> I don't know whether cannabis is licensed. I'm glad that's all you're thinking about. Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. I am joined by my co-host uh, Rob Hunt today of Linnae Holdings out in uh, the San Diego area. Rob, how are you doing? I am terrific, and I gotta say that anytime we get to listen to a really fun clip followed by uh, the breakout of Loose Lucy from the Cap Center uh, puts me in a great mood for the rest of the show. Oh, there's no doubt, and and we'll we'll get back to that first clip in a second. But that Loose Lucy is uh, really special. I think you know for a lot of deadheads, it's a it's a it's a it's a well loved tune. It's a Jerry tune. It's uh, uh, it's got a great history behind it. But the Dead played it, and then they stopped playing it uh, after their show on October nineteenth, nineteen seventy four. And this is why you go to a Grateful Dead show when it's nearby, because you just never know. And on March fourteenth, nineteen ninety, which is the show we're going to feature later on today's show, uh, lo and behold, uh, Jerry pulls out uh, Loose Lucy, no prior warning, no nothing. Uh, 15 and a half years later, and you can hear the way the crowd reacts. Uh, you were there, Rob. Tell me what it was like. Well, point of clarification, I wasn't there on the 14th. I got to hear about it when I got there on the 15th. And uh, all anyone talked about was Loose Lucy was broken out last night. So I had the tapes of it by the 16th, and I got to sit there and listen to it in the car in the parking lot going, ah, I can't believe I missed this one. But, you know, a 979-show break between between performances is a pretty big breakout you know i'll say this i think i saw the next one they played and the one after that because i saw a lot of that 1990 style spring tour but you know that crowd you know there's a couple great highlights from that run at the cap center but the breakout of loose lucy has got to be right up there with the best one yeah i mean you just love a crowd that uh that reacts like that and the cap center was always a place uh, washington dc for that matter where jerry and the boys just really like to uh breakout tunes all the time um and of course for many deadheads who are sitting there listening to that date december 14th excuse me uh december 14th march 14th 1990 and wondering why it sounds so familiar it's because the very next night phil lesh's birthday his 50th birthday i believe march 15th 1990 is a show that the dead released a number of years back uh under the banner terrapin station it comes in some fancy artwork and supposedly some of the proceeds were going to go to build the the terrapin center or whatever it was going to be called that they never quite got around to building 
but that's an awesome show in its own right um, that we'll probably get to someday. But in looking at show and considering that one, uh, all the comments that I saw took me back to the day before and to the Loose Lucy and the uh, the other the other clips from that show that we'll play in a few minutes. So um, it's great and uh, we all love it. And it's a lot a lot of fun to talk about. But what about that introduction, Rob? What about this guy uh, who's trying to escape the shelling? He's Ukrainian. He's trying to escape the shelling. And they're asking him what's going on, and it's hard to hear it at first, but his first response is, I smoke weed, 420. And then he goes on to say that, you know, legal cannabis, and the, the interviewer doesn't know what to make of it. What, what were your thoughts? My thoughts for this is terrific. I mean, if you listen to the entire clip, and I've listened to it a couple times now, uh, it essentially it was a reporter that, as you said, was trying to, to catch this guy as he was fleeing. And it, his response was really, you know, everything's going to be just fine. You know, we're, we're going to get through this and then sort of, and the way I can show that to you is I'm sitting here smoking joints, getting high, you know, there's a war going on, but we're going to be okay. You know, let's, let's think about other things. And, uh, and I think, you know, it's, it's obviously gone viral in the cannabis community. I think there's, you know, it's being posted by, by everyone from uh, a lot of the bigger CEOs just going, hey, here's, here's a, a way to support cannabis legalization. It's even in the worst of times, you know, cannabis helps you get through some bad ones. Uh, so I love that clip. I, I, I just think it's tremendous. And, um, you know, all personal preferences aside, you're absolutely right, though. You know, in, in the midst of total craziness and chaos, which we talked about last week in a lot more detail, you know, in, in, a, in a world kind of gone mad and what everybody looks at is, you know, a very 21st century modern country. And, you know, all of a sudden they got bombs falling all around them. And now this week we've seen the pictures of the uh, unfortunate families who uh were trying to escape and, and, and got themselves, you know, bombed into oblivion for reasons that I don't think any of us can understand. And, and you know, here's somebody who's in the midst of it and who's, you know, who's, who's, who's similarly trying to get away, but he seems to be very calm and, you know, under control and, and he's willing to contribute it to, to marijuana. And, you know, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's being disrespectful. I don't know, but I just love it because, uh, you know, it, 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 it's everywhere and, and we see it all around the world. And I think that it, it, it speaks volumes that somebody, you know, undergoing the, the level of stress and anxiety that those people must be undergoing is willing and is, is happy to credit smoking cannabis and smoking marijuana with helping them get through those times. Yeah, I agree. And I love the fact that it was on live TV, so there's no way to edit that out. And, uh, you know, his, right. his message actually made it out to the masses. And as I said, it's since gotten viral. So, uh, you know, one more one more reason to, to think about legalizing, not just in the United States, but legalizing around the globe, because uh, there's certainly a great deal of support for it in, you know, kind of that area. Like, you look at what's happening in North Macedonia right now with, uh, with cultivation, and, you know, hopefully we're going to see it spread to, uh, to some of the other uh, states nearby, whether it's Moldova or whether it's the Ukraine. But the legalization movement is just not, it's not just here. It is uh, relatively universal, as, as demonstrated by that guy. True. And, you know, I think you kind of touched on this before, but boy, I can't imagine a better endorsement for marijuana, right, than a guy. The shells are falling all around you, sir. How are you doing? Oh, I smoke weed, 420. You know, that if that's, boy, that, that could be a tagline for somebody. And I'm not an advertising guy, but... Uh, yeah, that's that that's pretty amazing, and and you know we all laugh, I think, and it's it's kind of funny, you know, as 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 as, as folks who enjoy cannabis and uh, smoke a little ourselves from time to time, you know, we always have always had this kind of a relationship where no matter where you are in the world, if somebody you know is willing to tell you that they do it too, you know, you can always kind of find a uh, form a bond with them. 
But in this case, what it, I think what it does for, at least for me, is more than anything, you know, it really personalizes these folks more than ever. You know, they're, they're not just faces of some grainy photo taken on the front page of a foreign newspaper. You know, these are guys coming to us live, um, you know, telling us what's happening. And he's, he's proud to, to talk about this kind of stuff and, 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 and to hold it out there and, you know, good for him and good for the live TV for not being able to edit it out and, uh, you know, and allowing this message to be heard. So if you haven't found it yet and you want to hear the whole thing, you can find it on the Internet. I'm not very good at finding things, but if you type Ukrainian guy 420, I smoke weed, I'm sure it will come up very quickly. You think the Waldos ever would think that, like, back in the 1970s when they coined the term 420, that it would ever end up being said by, a, you know, a Ukrainian fleeing war from, from Russia? Like, they've, they've got to look at what they've created sometimes and just shake their head going... I cannot believe that, that you know this has taken off the way that uh, you know it has over the last you know call it thirty years. Well, I mean it, it's 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 transcends anything else. I mean it, it it's become ingrained in the stoner culture, and you know I mean I can't think of any honor that could be any greater for somebody who's a member of that culture. You know for something that you've you you've created, you've come up with, you've you've coined the phrase for whatever you want it to be. And everybody else says, yeah, that's kind of cool. Let's do, you know, I, we love that. We want to be able to do that too. You know, and, and I know you said that once you had a, uh, a brief encounter with the Waldos, but uh, I mean, that would certainly be a fun conversation with people to sit around and have and, and just to touch on those types of issues, right? And, yeah, we, I, I got to reach back out to those guys. We got to get them on this show. I think they'd love to do it, but they are some of the funniest, wittiest, just like they're, it's a clown show with those guys. Uh, and I think they'd be a lot of fun. That would be great. Uh, Right. I mean, but yeah, that, that is when you think about that, that that's how far that that's come. I mean, both on a marijuana level, but also on a personal level that somebody could kind of casually toss something off into the world. And, and what was that? We were talking about with that the late 1970s, 1980, when they coined that phrase. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a long time ago and it really didn't even start taking off as a real phrase outside of Marin County until, you know, probably like 88, 89, where it started spreading a little further north into California. The first time I heard it was maybe 92, 93. Uh, and then, like, by 2000, it was just wildfire. Yeah, it was everywhere. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that is that is kind of amazing. And I would be curious to know how, you know, I mean, look, I had my group of buddies in high school. You know, we all had our stupid little stuff that we said to one another. And, you know, I, I don't think anybody in the world is particularly interested in any of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's kind of cool that, you know, they played a part of the culture and they're, they're, they're immortalized in it forever. So... Uh, that is very nice. Um, we didn't really have a chance to talk about marijuana news last week, given uh, our focus on the Ukraine and uh, our, our similar focus on morning dew and, and everything that that kind of means. Uh, but there are some things going on out there in the world. And I think that it's important for people to remember, Rob, that in this industry, you know, it's not always, uh, you know, wine and roses or, you know, uh, Keefe and, uh, you know, Rick Simpson oil, whatever you want to say, and we just have to point to what's going on up in Canada, uh, where authorities have seized over 35 million grams of, of cannabis, which I think equates, they set out, to about 7,800 plants. From what I can tell, for, for, for basically violating the uh, Canadian laws with respect to proper reporting and proper recording and and all of that kind of stuff, and... Um, you know, to me, I, I just, you know, the, the one thing I used to say to, and still say to any of my clients, you know, who are in the market to get licenses is that for God's sakes, this is the one industry in the world where you don't want to play loose and fast. You know, you kind of have to respect that thin, thin green line that says, 
you're doing something that's already a little shaky. You don't want to get any closer to that line than you have to. Um, and by, you know, drawing attention to yourself by doing things that would potentially, you know, draw attention in any other business, i.e. failure to follow regulatory rules and guidelines, you're just you're just increasing the risk. And, you know, these companies are, are well, at least the Canadian market, I don't, I, I don't know what the company specifically, but the Canadian market is publicly traded. What does something like this do to the, you know, to the Canadian market as a whole and to investor confidence in, in investing in Canadian uh, marijuana companies? Yeah, I mean, it's been a problem. It's been prevalent, you know, not just in Canada, but, you know, all over the place. And there's always that big question. And certain markets, I think, do a much better job in regulating it than others do. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing in Canada, the hardest part is how do you actually identify that these guys are doing it without having real audits uh, going into, you know, these places, having people just sort of do uh, spot checks and showing up at your doorstep and saying, all right, let's pull the last records from X amount of dates and try to figure out where the manifests are. Um, but, you know, look, I've talked about this before that for a long time in my life I fought for you know decriminalization and fought for people to have the ability not to be penalized for cannabis, and now I've you know kind of gone the opposite direction, saying well if you've got the opportunity to be a legal cannabis business, then please do play by the uh, the rules because if not, you know you're you're handing the market over to crime instead of you know trying to uh, to clean it, trying to you know make it a uh, you know a good industry. So, you know, I think it's incumbent upon the regulators to continue to do this work. And I think that uh, operators that are trying to walk both sides of the line need to be penalized. So I was really pleased to see the enforcement action in Canada. And, and hopefully, you know, California starts doing a bit more of that themselves. You know, I look at markets like Colorado, where there's very, very little in the way of diversion because they made the legal market so expansive. So they've made it, you know, where the, the legal market is, is so much more efficient than the illicit market that uh, it doesn't you know, entice the, uh, the consumer to, to migrate away from the legal market. And that's the absolute key here. And Canada, I think, has a really tough time of doing that. There's such a huge ingrained legacy market that exists that, you know, to get everyone to migrate over, it, it takes creating a really good, efficient market. And for the LPs in Canada to still kind of uh, be sliding stuff out the back door, I mean, there's, all they're ultimately doing is harming themselves and harming the other businesses around them that are trying to make a go of it. So I was happy to see the enforcement. So... I mean, you make a great point, you know, and, and, and the point is why would they do anything that stupid that would jeopardize their license, right? I mean, you, you get a license, you're able to operate, and, and you know what, they, it's not like they don't know the rules or they haven't been explained to them. And so, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, is, is that a way of these people saying, you know, directly or, or not, depending on how you want to look at it, that maybe there's advantages to operating in a gray or a black market that, you know, obviously are you know um, preferred over a legal market right there, there's no regulation no forms to fill out no taxes to pay um you know no worry about whether somebody's going to come out and start looking at my plants and telling me if you know they think my plants are good enough you know some guy who's never seen a marijuana plant in his life and i can imagine where a lot of these legacy people you know even if they've gone public part of it's in their blood and part of their blood is we kind of do things our own way you know, and, and if the only thing I can think of is if they're saying, look, we're going to potentially lose our license, but so what? It's always, we, we made more money on the black market, but of course, now you've, now you've come out of the closet. So it's kind of hard to turn around and pretend like, you know, you're, 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 you're taking yourself back in. But I, I, I just find it hard to believe that guys who are running companies, you know, this size uh, in a market where, 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 where public trading is, is allowed, you know, maybe I'm just naive, I don't know, but that just seems to me to be very, very surprising. But either way, I think at the end of the day, what you're saying is absolutely true. 
and it's important that authorities enforce in these situations. And while I was always for people being able to grow uh, independent of law enforcement, now that society has created what we've looked for, which is a you know a market, in particular a regulated market, which is more to ensure I think the quality of the goods being sold than anything else. People who want to take advantage of it need to play by the rules, and if they're not willing to, then if the authorities don't enforce those rules, and all they're doing is just kind of recreating the black market on a broader scale. Yeah, agreed. And uh, I think we uh, think we need to see a bit more enforcement across the board, or we just need to see more expansive markets. Either way, we're we're going to get to the place we need to be, which is full scale legalization across you know the United States and Canada. But more importantly, with uh, a consumer base that actually wants to access that market. And it doesn't ever look to the illicit market anymore. You know, you can legalize anywhere you want, but if you make it impossible or you make it, uh, you know, California being a prime example, where you give, you know, municipalities the option to opt out, even though the voters voted for it, and the municipality comes back later and says, yeah, we voted for it, but, you know, not in my backyard, then it really doesn't legalize. It doesn't, nothing happens. Well, I think that that's very true, too. And, um, you know, uh, 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 another great example of that, I think, you know, just to really quickly divert here for a minute is what's happening in uh, Oklahoma right now, which is the country's most business-friendly medical marijuana market. Uh, And and even though uh, it's such a wide-open market, they still are looking for ways for purposes of curbing what, you know, they're saying is illegal activity, you know, that they've been seized. Recently, I think they seized law enforcement agencies there $500 million worth of illicit marijuana. Now, it's a free for all there. You know, they're coming out to shut down the illegal operators in Oklahoma. And the question is, why would you be an illegal operator in Oklahoma if licenses are available basically just by if you take the time to go and fill out the damn license? Yeah, I mean, because they made it too easy. Uh, you know, they gave out so many cultivation licenses, there's no one that's overseen the program. The vast majority of you know what's being produced there is not in like large scale commercial cultivation facilities. It's in like literally like double wides. It's uh, or you know old shipping containers. I've seen some of the, the most makeshift, you know, sketchiest looking grows that I've ever seen coming out of Oklahoma. And so you know on that side of it, it, it's just basically glorified like you know catch me if you can, but you don't even know where my my facility is. It's out in the woods somewhere, uh, inside a inside a um, you know, an old shipping container. So it's, there's no market like that. There's got to be something in the middle, which is, you know, we can identify who these people are. We can still oversee it. There's got to be enough capital allocated into the government budget to allow for uh, the proper auditing process. Uh, and it ain't metric. You know, let's, let's be clear about that. There's so many loopholes in metric. There's so many loopholes in any other seed and sale tracking system that exists. As long as you're able to, to keep the hemp market, you know, in parallel path, the canvas market, where anyone can take something that looks identical and sort of bring it in and pop it hot with pesticide and say, oh, I destroy the product, and then you destroy the hemp instead of destroying the cannabis. Tell me how metrics are going to figure that out. Tell me how like, you know, a state auditor is going to figure that out. There's so many different easy loopholes these guys are exploiting. And you know, as I've always said, criminals are always far more creative than, than guys that are legal. They'll find the loopholes. You just need to figure out. Like, the U.S. government hires a ton of people to um, prevent like, cyber espionage by hiring the best hackers in the world. You know, they, they, they hire the guys that would otherwise be the hacking, you know, be doing the, the, the black hat stuff. We got to have the same thing in cannabis. We have to have like the most creative criminal minds going in there, picking apart metric and saying, this is exactly how they're going to, you know, screw you guys on this thing and figuring out how to plug those holes. And so far, it's just like, oh, well, we created the market. So, you know, we're, we're good. You know, we've got the chain of custody. We can track it. We, we set up our, our specific thresholds. Yeah, that, that's not even close. It, 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 it's woefully um, ignorant of the state regulators to actually think 
that if they just build something that's you know a simple piece of software that that's going to you know hold the day and that you know criminals aren't going to still figure out a way to exploit the market when they know that they can still make significantly more money on the illicit market than they can on the legal. You know, there's got to be a motivation to to shut this down. So it's got to be some sort of an enforcement action that makes the penalty you know strong enough to be a, a deterrent. Or it needs to be uh, a way to actually create better software, or it needs to be, more, most importantly, I could say this over and over again, create a more efficient market. Create a market that the consumers want, that the consumers will access, where the price of legal cannabis is less expensive than the price of illegal cannabis. If you can't figure that out, you will never, ever get rid of this illicit market. And, you know, you look at Canada, I mean, that's how we started this whole thing. Drop in the bucket what they seized. You know, $35 million? Okay. That's nothing. That's what they caught. That's like saying, oh, we see this much cocaine coming across the Mexican border. Okay, for every gram you catch, the 100 grams are making it through, and most of what they catch is a sacrificial lamb for, for, the, uh, for the cartels anyway. They say, go ahead, pick these off so you can make your, your big headline, and the DEA can have their big drug bust and you know, show the pictures of guns and bricks. You know? like, that, that, as long as my tunnels still go underneath to, to Tijuana, or you know, from Tijuana, like it's, it, this whole thing is it, it, it's, a, um, it, it's nonsensical that the governments don't actually take the time to say, okay, let's actually bring in the people that can teach us how they're going to screw us. I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, it's just, I think, important for people, you know, who are looking for entry into the market. I've had clients who have come in and said, well, you know, Illinois is too tight. Uh, California and Colorado are far too mature and established. Uh, We're going to go to Oklahoma. Anybody can get a license in Oklahoma. You know, and, and the numbers I think right now, are that you know they've got over 12,000 licensed businesses, uh, marijuana businesses, 8,000 growers, 2,200 dispensaries, 1,500 processors, 103 transporters, 29 laboratories. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the state I think only has a total population of about four million people to begin with. So you know, they've already created a problem for themselves because, like California, they're going to create a crop. Uh, you know, that's going to be far in excess of what the state can possibly consume. Um, And so, you know, to me, that's the first problem. But the second problem, and you pointed this out right away about why it's so important uh, that they are, you know, enforcing these things in Canada, that, you know, everybody just comes back and says the real problem in Oklahoma is that the, the, the agencies aren't really trying to enforce at all. And so when you can't, when you're not going to enforce it all, you know, if I'm one of 8,000 growers in the state and there's only 2,200 dispensaries to begin with, so you're, you know, you're, my, my legal market is already uh, somewhat limited, 1,500 processors, you know, in, in terms of who's going to be out there uh, and, and buy my stuff, I, I can easily see where the incentive grows very quickly for some of these companies to start selling out the back door, as it were, um, you know, and, and do it that way. And if they realize that there's absolutely absolutely no enforcement effort or, or such a minimal enforcement effort is to, you know, really almost kind of be a joke. There's no reason for him not to do it that way. Yeah, and I'll go a step further. I mean, if you look at what was happening with, uh, with Colorado for a while, with Nebraska and Kansas, you know, being their next door neighbors, I, I can't believe that, you know, Texas isn't up in arms about this. You think that they'd be posting people on either side of the Red River, just, you know, picking people off as they're coming across. Because there's, you know, as you said, the total addressable market is a total addressable market. You know, there's no possible way you can consume as much as uh, Oklahoma's producing. So then the question is, you know, no one, <laughs> to date, I've still yet to meet someone that's throwing a pound of weed away. I mean, maybe, maybe you have, but someone will buy it. It's going somewhere. So, you know, my guess is it's probably going down to Texas or it's going into, uh, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, and, and Louisiana. You know, if, if the governors of um, Nebraska and Kansas were uh, upset with Colorado, Colorado never, never had that kind of uh, loose situation where, you know, 
that there was that many licenses that were popping up. Uh, these licenses, like, you know, 90% of what's being produced in Oklahoma is definitely, definitely leaving that state. And the only reason you're not hearing about it is because Oklahoma's got, you know, a pretty strong, uh, a very similar government, I should say, to the governments of, of the states. You know, like those, those governments aren't going to lean on Oklahoma because they're, they're kindred spirits. Right. No, I understand. And, and I get that part of it. So, you know, it just goes to show, though, right, that even if you have a, uh, a legal market, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that law enforcement doesn't play a role. Uh, they actually play a very significant role because we need them uh, to enforce the rules to make the overall market work. So, yeah, you know, as always, uh, lots of interesting things going on in the marijuana industry. Uh, I, I tend to chalk a lot of these stories that we see week after week up to just, you know, growing pains both on the side of the, 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 the business people in the industry, but also certainly on the sides of the, the communities in which they operate and where they sell their goods. You know, and these, these, these communities are all still in the process, I think, of trying to mentally untangle, uh, you know, this, 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 this knot that's grown in their brain that says this thing that we were always uh, knee-jerk against to the strongest possible extent our whole lives all of a sudden is making us a boatload of money. And it doesn't really seem to be causing all the problems that we were taught it to be. We were told it would cause, but it's marijuana. So what the heck? And you know, hopefully they'll 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 make their ways through that. And you know, the Christie gnomes of the world will just have to accept that if you were my governor, I'd be getting stoned every day too. So you know, you got to do what you got to do. So that actually provides a great segue, though, to uh, to getting back to the cap center. You know, because you asked me, you know, right in the beginning, we're talking about you know uh, increase in law enforcement presence. And if you were to say, what do I remember from those three shows? And if you were to ask anyone that was there for those three shows, the one overarching theme of March fourteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth, nineteen ninety, was my God, how many cops there were at that place. Uh, it was Mounties on horsebacks. It was more busts than you've ever seen. Like you know, that that was the rest of spring tour. All anyone talked about was like. The police presence at, uh, at, in Landover was insane. And it was primarily, as you can imagine, for cannabis. Uh, so, you know, I, I think back and I think, okay, what a fun run when you're inside the show. But how terrifying it was when you're outside the show, especially there's one dirt lot that the Capitol Center used to have, and that was where the shakedown was. And, uh, you know, they were, they were putting cameras in the, uh, the light towers. They were, you know, mounted guys with, uh, with billy clubs coming around clearing the lots. It was, uh, it was a melee. And the 15th, like I told you uh, via email, for Phil's birthday, you know, people came from everywhere. And that was one of the hardest tickets that I've ever, ever tried to get. Um, you know, I, I saw people, like, trading their car. I saw people trading brand new pairs of skis. I saw people, like, offering, like, literally anything for that, for that Phil's 50th. Which, by the way, was the worst of the three nights as far as, you know, in, musically. But it was, just the, the, it was the first band member to turn 50. It was a seminal moment. But, uh, but man... Law enforcement for cannabis, what a time, what a difference, you know, um, 32 years makes. Yes, but, you know, I don't even know that I can say entirely yes to that yet, right? I mean, everything that you're talking about is true, although when I was in Deer Creek this past summer uh, to go see fish, they were pretty aggressive as we walked in and, you know, uh, you know, people pointing to pockets and wondering what's in there and, oh, let me see in that pocket and let me look around and, you know, what it does is it brings back this feeling that says, if as a community you're willing to allow a band like Fish or the Grateful Dead to come in and perform so you can reap all the tax benefits and all the incremental dollars that will be spent on gasoline, on food, on everything else, 
um, then for God's sakes, you know, you can't send, you know, police forces in there uh, running around with billy clubs, you know, busting everybody like it's, you know, the 1950s or whatever. And, um, you know, you know, this is going to be there. What's the point? Why would you do this? Why are you creating a situation to bust out, you know, to bring a whole bunch of kids in and they're not harming anybody. If, you know, my experience always was, if you went back and talked to law enforcement, they'd always at the end say that the Grateful Dead fans were the, the mellowest fans they dealt with. They were most, for the most part, polite. They were for the most part cooperative. There's bad eggs in every crowd. And they, and they weren't drunk. And they weren't drunk. You know, and if you, you know, who would, who would these places rather have, you know, you know, any one of these, you know, country acts that come in that may be a little more politically correct, but if every guy who walks in the door has been slugging down Jack Daniels all night, they're going to have a lot more trouble at that concert than they're going to have at a Grateful Dead concert. Or, you know, any of the rowdier acts, you know, the, like the speed metal and, you know, just metal in general acts. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of bands where I'd be a lot more cautious if I were law enforcement. I mean, look, law enforcement in general looks for soft targets. And uh, you know, it makes their lives easier to to take down a soft target than you know a well-armed target. So it, it makes sense. The, the Grateful Dead fans were, were an easy target. But let's talk about the music from those shows because I'll tell you, Spring 1990, I think in a lot of people's minds, they'll say that was the last great Grateful Dead tour, like top to bottom. That was the one that was the last time that the Dead were just firing on all cylinders. Every single show was fire. Uh, you know, I, I got to see a couple of the Landovers. I saw Hartford. I saw all three Nassau's. I uh, saw the, the opening of the Knickerbocker. It was the first, first time the Knickerbocker had ever opened uh, on 324, 25, and 26. Um, I didn't see the Cops Coliseum shows up in Ontario. But, I mean, that, that tour, every single night. And obviously, you know, the, the Brantford 329, which we've talked about, uh, you know, gets all, the, gets all the accolades. But the opening three nights at the Cap Center... You know, three really, really strong nights. It's a wonderful tour. And in fact, the Dead have released a, a good chunk of the tour in two different box sets uh, that have come out, you know, over the past number of years. And, uh, you know, they, they really played off that way. You know, I know one of the shows up in Canada, uh, maybe for only the second or third time ever, they actually played the full version of Hey Jude, not just the reprise coming out of Dear Mr. Fantasy, uh, but the entire actual song. You know, which takes you back to Pigpen doing it in the Fillmore West in uh, March of 1969. Uh, you know, the, I think it was the third show uh, for the encore that night. And by God, it's maybe the worst rendition of, of Hey Jude I've ever heard in my it's life. It's a disaster, isn't it? But it's so much <laughs> fun to listen to. But he's just a disaster. He is a disaster. And, you know, Brent, by comparison, of course, is like a choir boy. I mean, with his voice, it's... Uh, but that is a great tour, and uh, this is a wonderful show. And it's funny, you know, as, you know, you talk about the fifteenth being probably the least uh, of the three nights musically, because that is, of course, the one that predictably they chose to release. And I happen to like it. I think it's a good show. I like the Terrapin Station on there, right? I think that it's uh, it's got a lot of other good stuff. I like I like that in uh, uh, that version of um, Tom Thumb Blues. You know, you've got Phil saying at the very end, "I'm going back to Foggy Bottom." Uh, you know, I love that. That's, you know, that's just funny. That's, you know, he's he's kind of tuned into where he's at and what's going on. Um, I know you were talking about the uh, I Will Take You Home uh, that Brent did, I think. Is, no, the, the, the Blow Away. The Blow Away. I'm sorry, right. That that was it, the Blow Away, right. Yeah, the, the, the Blow Away the third night, then the, uh, the first set. You know, that first set was just a great first set, and the Blow Away was just absolute fire. Well, it was a big... Uh, not, not quite as good as, as the JFK, a couple summers, or I guess the no, summer... Um, that year, I think that nineteen ninety JFK show was was the one, but uh, but you know definitely a top five blow away. And the Knickerbocker a couple of days later was 
Titanic as well. And, and you know, we've talked very much about the fact that, uh, you know, at this point in time, uh, although he doesn't know it and we don't know it, you know, Brent's time is running out. And, uh, you know, it's probably no coincidence that people talk about this being the last great tour because after this tour, they had the summer tour uh, that culminated at Tinley Park. And we've talked about those shows and pretty much what a disaster they were just because of logistics and everything else. Uh, and we featured the uh, Deer Creek show immediately preceding that, which was a, a Dave's pick selection. Uh, but these shows, to hear the way that Brent is playing and to hear the command that he has, and in fact, uh, uh, you know, let's, another one of the, Let's listen to some. Yeah, let's listen let's, to some. Let's listen to the, uh, the, the Never Trust a Woman, I think, from that night. Yeah, that's a great tune, too. Go ahead, Dan, please. just his keyboard playing which is exceptional i mean he's he's really fashioned himself into a vocalist i mean with a with a powerful powerful voice a very distinctive sound and and you know he he, he could easily be playing in any blues bar in chicago you know the way he plays these tunes yeah i completely agree that was the, the one part of you know brent that i really really missed in the uh the remainder of the 90s is once he actually felt, you know, sort of the comfort level he was feeling in the spring of 90, I was so looking forward to seeing what the next step was that he had three or four songs that he was consistently playing the repertoire between that and Let It Run and Blow Away and... Uh, and I Will Take You Home. Yeah, I Will Take You Home. There's, there was one other as well that was uh, in there too. But, and, and then the duets, you know, the Give Me Some Lovin's, you know, there's a handful of things, but, but the pure sort of blues that he's bringing back, like the real blues, really was the first time the band had had that since Pig. So, you know, bringing back in a uh, Never Trust a Woman was, you know, was sort of the way that, you know, Jerry bringing back Big Boss Man, you know, to, to introduce into the, the lineup around that time. But, you know, those were songs that were, they, they could have just as easily been picked singing Never Trust a Woman as it was, Brent. It's true. And, and the other ones you mentioned, you know, earlier, were they really are all great songs. And he was such a talented musician. And I think, um, you know, from the stories and the, and the um, uh, documentaries that we've seen that, uh, you know, it seemed like his biggest obstacle was always just his own self-confidence and, you know, really taking and running it with it. And at this period of time, by God, is he running with it? And as beautiful it is, as it is to hear, you know, it's also bittersweet because, you know, just as we realize he's hitting his groove, we also realize that, it, you know, he's reaching the end of the line. Um, and you, you just have to, you just, at this point, you had to be able to just enjoy him while you can and, uh, and, and really get the most out of it. And in fact, um, We've talked about this too, but I think that one of the great things that 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 Brent brought to the table, and that, that we're about to hear in in, a, in, a, in another clip we're going to run here in a minute, is how well he connected with Jerry, and it really seemed like the two of them kind of played off of each other. You know, really, uh, he took Jerry in directions that Jerry might not otherwise be willing to go, and I think that my impression always was that Brent felt that you know Jerry really treated him like an equal, and he responded to that. You know, they've done a lot of wonderful things, but for me, always far and away, uh, one of the greatest things that the two of them ever did was, you know, when they bought back yet another classic standard uh, from our friends, uh, Traffic, 
Uh, so, Dan, if you'll go ahead and just play this next one really fast, and uh, we can talk about it in a minute. Besides the fact that it's a great tune and, and I have a problem that I can never cut my clips in the middle of lyrics or a really good jam to make them shorter, um, let's focus for a minute on the guitar solo that Jerry was playing at the very beginning of the clip and right before they went back into the lyrics and the notes that he was hitting and the places he was going. I mean, that is a energetic, vibrant, creative Jerry Garcia um, you know, which can be contrasted, I think, from even what we talked about with David Gans a while back, you know, some of the 94, 95 shows where, you know, Jerry was kind of going through the motions, but very rarely uh, showed that kind of energy and hit those, those you know, those, those kind of notes. And what's, what's, what's perfect about that for me is Jerry's just jamming and hitting note after note after note after note, and all of a sudden, in comes Brett with the big organ sound and kind of like steers him right back into the lyrics. And, you know, I remember seeing them on stage doing it, you know, and the two of them watching each other while they were playing it, you know, and the smile on Jerry's face and the smile on Brent's face. And it was just, it's a great connection. And uh, I was at the breakout, Dear Mr. Fantasy, um, at, at Red Rocks back in 84. And it was just amazing then we realized they were playing it at all. And now, you I mean, by this point in time, it's, it's so well polished and such a part of their repertoire uh, that it's still... Um, a great bonus for me whenever they would play it. I always loved Dear Master Fantasy. Uh, I loved it with the Jude, you know, sort of reprise. I loved it without the Jude reprise. But, you know, again, I was saying uh, earlier, the duets that Brent did, you know, that's <clears throat> that's other, besides Give Me Some Love, and I think that's the other one that is just the classic. And I think the interplay between uh, between Brent and Jerry all the way through the song, both lyrically and um, musically, was incredible. So, and, and first of all, I'm a huge, you know, Steve Winwood's a huge traffic fan, so it's, it's easy to be excited about the song, but of all the things to pick out to put in your catalog, it was a, a great pick for the band. It was a wonderful pick for the band, and I know I, I, I may have mentioned this on the show last week in a different context, but I love, just love how when Jerry sings it, he says, keep us out of this gloom, instead of take us out of this gloom, which was the way that Stevie Winwood originally sang it. And, you know, it, you know he's a half-glass-full kind of guy. And I like that about Garcia, you know, he, 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 he went beyond, he, he, he was, he was making a happy space for everyone and he knew it, 
you know, it wasn't like he just forgot the lyric and said it wrong. I, I, you know, I saw them play it early on. In fact, the very first time I think they played it, he said, keep us out of this gloom. And Brent was saying, take us out of this gloom. And somewhere along the way, Brent, you know, caught up with what Jerry was saying. But, you know, that there's just something about Garcia saying it, you know, and, I, and I'm not going to drift off again into a diss on anybody else here. But that's, that was the magic of Garcia, that when he sang the song, that's the way he saw it, and that's the way he sang it, and that's the message that he conveyed into the audience. And I think even if you weren't catching the fact that he was saying that word instead of another word, you know, the whole spirit behind the song was just so happy that, you know, it was kind of hard to imagine, you know, there's no gloom at all around here, you know, as long as you guys are playing, we're in a great space. You know, the gloom only set in when they, you know, finally got, you know, when, when they would roll into the start of throwing stones and, you know, okay, here we go, throwing stones, not fade away, U.S. Blues, and we're out of here. And if that sounds a little bit jaded, I'm sorry, but after seeing that combination to close shows, probably, you know, 50% of the shows of my last, you know, 25 or 30 shows that I saw, you know, sometimes you're looking for a little bit different, but... Uh, Hence the expression, it's a throwaway. Yes, sir. Absolutely, but but this this tune is never a throwaway, and and uh, what a pleasure to hear them play together, and it just sounds so good like that. That just such a good mesh of the two of them. Yeah, I agree, and uh, and that really was. You know, I truly believe that uh, spring of nineteen ninety is where the two of them together were at the absolute peak. You know, even even going into a summer tour of nineteen ninety, you know, they're both firing all cylinders. And the other songs I was thinking of before, you know, was uh, you know, bringing back "Easy to Love You," obviously, and then "Just a Little Light." So, you know, Brent had a, you know, there, there's seven or eight songs that he was keeping in the repertoire. And "Fuck for Me," you're right, yep. So there's, there's, I guess, like ten songs that were in the rotation that Brent was either singing solo or was, uh, or was you know, duetting on, which is a, a pretty major part of the catalog at that time. It wasn't just you know, Bobby song, Jerry song, Bobby song, Jerry song. It was uh, there's a lot of Brent thrown there. At least you know, at least a song every night. And when you consider, you know, they throw a Phil song into the mix periodically. I mean, it was great to hear different voices singing and to see so many of them, uh, you know, being able to get involved like that on so many different levels. You know, and, and they all had their own little you know thing that they were doing with it. But yeah, just uh, great tune, great way to play it. Um, you know, great ideas, and it is a tribute. You know, I, I really think as to how well. You know they were playing at that time, and, and what a great uh, connection was going on. And and, well, and you look what happened afterwards. You know, once they uh, once Brent passed, they had to fill that gap or that fill that void somehow. And Phil actually got a whole bunch of new tunes over the next couple of years between Broken Arrow and Childhood's End. And if the shoe fits, you know they're they're, they're trying to figure out ways to replace. I mean, Vince was getting a couple songs, but mostly you know kind of the bigger encore like Beatles tunes were were his. Um, but other than that, you know, Phil was actually getting a lot of material. Uh, I think to try to, to pick up where you know what we lost with Brent going. It's true, and you know I mean we can say this about every wonderful musician. And, and the, the purpose of this show is not just necessarily to focus on Brent, but that's where it's kind of taken us for the moment. So we'll play it out for a second here. But you know I mean he was my original keyboardist when I first started seeing them. Same with you, and uh, you know I I never had um, uh, Keith Gauchow to compare him against. I never had the privilege of seeing Pigpen or or, or TC. You know when they were back there. Uh, doing the keyboards for the for the band and everything, so for me it was always just about Brent. And you know, I, I appreciated the effort that Vince put in afterwards. I, you know, we've we spent an episode or two talking about that, and I'm sure we will again someday. But uh, you know, Brent was just such a such a dynamic force. For instance, 
you know, I, I really wonder, you know, how much of a role, and I, I think it was a big role that he played in Jerry having the confidence to come back and, and you know, pull out a tune like Loose Lucy after 15 plus years. I think a lot of that came from playing with Brent and kind of the, uh, uh, the energy and the excitement he was getting from Brent. And, you know, it was certainly, it was certainly a good run of shows and there's every reason to go back and start pulling out good tunes. Um, but, you know, I don't want to give Brent too much credit, but I, I just think that, you know, he, Jerry was in a happy place. And when Jerry was in a happy place, he tended to dip into the catalog and see what else he could come up with more frequently than, than other times. Yeah. Again, yeah, I definitely make the strong recommendation of go back and listen to all three of those nights. You know, there's a handful of, of real highlights. You know, the, the blow away the third night is definitely one of them. Uh, but it, the Scarlet Fire, I think, on the third night as well uh, was, was a great way to open the second set. So there's a handful of highlights that are worth listening to. So it's not just about the 14th. The 14th, 15th, and 16th as an aggregate are, uh, are definitely worth checking out. <clears throat> and I think, I think we do have a little bit more to, to listen to. And it's a song. I mean, I'll let you uh, cue it up in a minute, Larry. But, you know, Black Muddy River uh, as an encore, I think, is another one of those songs, much like we've discussed with Black Peter, where it's like stuck in the slot where you're hoping for something else sometimes. You know, whether it's, you know, you're looking for, if you want a slow encore, you know, knocking on heaven's door or, you know, a couple other... Uh, would, would certainly get the um, the nod as far as like what people want to hear. But I always loved Black Muddy. I always thought the alliteration, I always thought the sort of the, the, the images it conjured up, I thought were just so beautiful. And I think especially like um, in big summer tour shows, you know, where you know, you're you thinking of the last uh, Rose of Summer Pricks Your Finger. And so I think, you know, a couple of times they ended tours with Black Muddy as the final song specifically because it's a great way to end a period, not just a night. And, uh, and I think the one we're going to play tonight or to play for the show is a, is a terrific one. You're right. We will get to that one in one minute. And, and thank you for, for setting that up. And let's not forget, though, uh, and I, I do agree that Black Muddy River is a beautiful tune and it was always a great show closer. Um, but that final show they played at uh, Soldier Field in 95, and it was such a bad Black Muddy River. Jerry was just struggling so hard. And after having heard it so beautifully so many times, uh, you know, to just kind of hear it being, and thank God for Phil, who's like, we ain't ending the tour. And as it turned out, we're not going to let this be the last song we ever play as the Grateful Dead. And they, they got a box of rain in there uh, as that, that uh, you know, rare second encore. Um, and so that was wonderful, too. Uh, we're running out of time. Just a couple of things I just want to touch on really quickly that will just kind of bounce through. After we talked about... Uh, um, Barton Hall last week in the Morning Dew, and we kind of had this little question about whether people think it's the best show ever because of the Morning Dew. I happened to find a clip online the other day, and it was titled The Best Two Minutes in the History of the Grateful Dead. And what it is is uh, there's, there's no video from Barton Hall, so the guy plays a clip from Barton Hall that he thinks is the best two minutes in the history of the Grateful Dead and shows the band, and he says what he's doing. He shows them playing like from behind, like a clips from the uh, the Grateful Dead movie where you know they're obviously them playing, but they're not playing the Barton Hall. But nevertheless, but to my surprise, the two minutes was like the last two minutes of Fire on the Mountain. It wasn't the morning dew. It was just this jam, you know, that, that closed out the last two minutes of Fire on the Mountain. It's beautiful. And so it did cause me to go back and listen to it again and, and kind of reconsider that, no, that, I mean, on overall on par, that is just a tremendous show from top to bottom. Um, and, and while the morning dew definitely did uh, uh, add a real kicker and kind of put it over the top, you know, there were, there were plenty of good parts of that show that stand on their own as well. I'm a firm believer that the best two minutes, the last two minutes of a Fire on the Mountain of all time would be uh, 10 14, 94. 
I think those last two minutes of that fire blow away any, any fire I know of, not the whole song, but just those last two minutes, the buildup and the crescendo. But, you know, again, I'm a product of the 90s. That's funny. Um, just really quickly, in terms of the world of uh, Grateful Dead music, Phil just announced that Phil and Friends is going to play at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival this year in June. Um, I've never been to Telluride, but I've heard it's a beautiful place. The Dead had a memorable run of shows there in the uh, late 1980s and literally shut down the town for a couple of days, I believe. But to anyone who's out that way and is otherwise inclined to go to a bluegrass festival, and it's a, it's a great festival on its own, obviously, uh, but with Phil and Friends there, it'll, it'll certainly be great. And I'm a lucky guy because this Friday night I get to go see uh, Bobby with Wolf Brothers at the uh, Chicago Theater. And I give a quick thanks and shout out to my good friend Bob Hoban, who uh, is going to be in town on business that week. Uh, Bob has been a guest on our show before. Uh, has his own podcast, The Hoban Minute, uh, that focuses on, on marijuana issues. Uh, and he's a big Bob Weir fan. Uh, we've talked about uh, and gone to shows together and had these discussions all the time. Uh, but he's going to be here. He got tickets and he reached out. So I'm very appreciative to Bob. I look forward to going and uh, be able to update everybody uh, on our next show about that. And uh, so many other good things coming up. And uh, we're going to be making our announcements soon about some of our some of our new guests. So please uh, stay tuned because you're going to really love it. Otherwise, that's everything I got, Rob. I hope you're doing well out there. Uh, to all of our listeners, have a great week. We'll we'll talk to you soon. Uh, please enjoy this clip of Black Muddy River uh, closing out the Grateful Dead on March 14, 1990 at the Cap Center uh, in Washington, D.C. And enjoy your cannabis responsibly. And the strings of my heart start to sing And stones fall from my eyes instead of tears I walk alone by the black muddy river Dreamy a dream of my own Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.